Hey, hey, water coolians. Welcome back to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Today, we are joined by a new friend of the program, Bianca and Quanta, for a special election eve episode. That's right. Unless you live under a rock, November 3rd, 2020 is only hours away. Well, I guess unless you're listening to this episode at a later date, then surprise, something happened and some people are happy and other people aren't happy. That's politics for you, baby. Enjoy the future. But in this episode, we take some time to talk about different methods of electing government officials, specifically the idea of a lottery similar to jury duty to elect a single issue legislature. I have reached out to the author of that idea, so hopefully in the future we will have an update to this episode that I will keep you informed about. But here in the US, we are in a weird position with the electoral college. It's helped create a system of an election coming down to the sway of a few states, swing states. There's a reason there has been an increased discussion on fracking because it matters in Pennsylvania and Texas, two states that could help a candidate over that 270 electoral mark and win the presidency. Even though a state like Pennsylvania is less than 4% of the total population of the US, millions of dollars and hundreds of hours are being spent campaigning there. No, no hate to our Pennsylvania listeners, but there's more people in America than just Pennsylvania. I'm, I'm not someone who believes in abolishing the electoral college. There's some good bones there, but our election system needs to do a better job of representing the entire population of the nation not just the swing states. Your vote should matter, even if you're a Republican in California or a Democrat in Mississippi. And then to close out the episode, Bianca and I have a conversation about the vast differences between conservative and liberal journalism and if facts matter. In our modern age of information, you can prove almost anything. Well, (laughs) except the reason why kids love the taste of Cinnamon Toast Crunch. There are exceptions there. But facts have become less important as our range of information has expanded. Uh, A a good example, during the pandemic, consumer spending has gone up in the past few months. You hear that and you could use that fact to say the economy is rebounding. But what if I also told you that consumer spending has gone up because the prices of goods and services consumers are spending that money on has also gone up? Both of these statements are true, but I could use that first statement and drop the second statement and technically still be telling you the truth. I could pass the polygraph. Once again, that's politics for you, baby. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk, episode 52, titled News Deserts with Bianca and Quanta. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not. Because they're real. Alright, this is from NJ.com Opinion, March 10th, 2019. Let's get rid of elections and choose our political leaders by lottery. It's a commonly shared belief that political institutions should be doing more to help address the many problems we face in the US. And yet, our elected officials in Washington, D.C. spend their time shutting down the government, fighting over immigration, ignoring climate change, and generally doing little to make things better. Maybe America's problem stems not from the fact that we aren't picking the right people, but from the fact that we aren't picking them the right way. Author of the article, Alexander Guerrero, professor of uh, philosophy at Rutgers University, New Brunswick School of Arts and Science, believes a new system is needed. A lottocracy. A lottocracy works similar to how citizens of the U.S. are selected for jury duty. The belief of a lottocracy is that a large group, Guerrero uses 300 individuals for example, of adult citizens would be selected at random to serve in a single issue legislator, like immigration or climate change, but only one of those issues for a period of three years. Each legislature would begin with a learning phase during which the randomly choosing group would learn about different policies ideas about their issue and hear from experts, stakeholders, and activists associated with their specific issue. The citizens would then have an opportunity to engage with the broader community, deliberate with each other, and come up with policy proposals specific to that issue. The randomly chosen person would be paid a substantial salary for to encourage participation. They would be able to postpone service if needed, and protections would be put in place so they would not be set back at work, and they could have their personal schedules accommodated. Guerrero states that moving away from a generalist legislative process opens up places for us to identify issues on which we agree and avoid situations where our attention is concentrated on only a few issues which most deeply divide us. Once again, examples of immigration and climate change. He adds that by choosing random people, it might finally become possible to move past the elite capture and control of political institutions in the U.S. 
As the posted date of the article, 140 of the 535 people serving in Congress have a net worth of over $2 million. 78% are male, 83% are white, and more than 50% have previously worked as lawyers or business people. Guerrero also adds that the excessive focus on the short term of current politics promises being made during an election cycle or policies being created that will only benefit that current administration's legacy often leave politicians ignoring bigger issues that will impact their country farther down the road. Once again, like immigration or climate change. Our apparent division is a storied of manufactured conflict, where the most powerful members of society keep us from working together by creating the sense of two teams, blue versus red, Democrat versus Republican, and furthers that divide by handing each team a set of policy positions and political candidates that are basically agreeable to be the most powerful of said team. Might we actually see this kind of sweeping political reform that brings us together instead of divides? Probably not anytime soon, but we should be taking small experimental steps to take real democratic control back. So just based on the uh, the, the proposal pushed forward by Guerrero here, Bianca, is, is a lotocracy a viable method of electing government politicians? Um, viable? I'm not sure. I think it's a great idea, honestly. If we look at the people who are currently representing our gov- like our country at the highest levels of government, clearly they're not representing us demographically or in any you know way, shape, or form. They don't look like us. They don't speak like us. They don't have the same experiences that most Americans do. So to do a lotocracy to kind of randomize that process and to ensure that the the population of people that is selected to lead our government at the highest level is reflective of the demographics of our country, it makes sense. Is it viable? <laughs> I, I don't know if that's achievable. And then on top of that, people in the highest levels of government they do a lot of it for their own personal interests, whether it's just like clout or just like mm-hmm. being able to say that they were the president or they served on this board or they were this, you know, whatever higher level position or, you know, impacting or making changes within the government to impact or to um, benefit them economically. Right. So ultimately, is it something that they're going to be willing to give up so that the government is more diverse and reflective of the population of the country? Probably not, because, you know, <laughs> they're they're always trying to serve their own best self-interest. But I do think that it is a great idea. I do think that our government needs to be shaken up and turned over. And I think a lot of Crassy, if, you know, if we were able to find some way to get all those people in our, you know, leaders, leadership positions and just move them somewhere else um, and, and implement a system like that, I think it would be extremely helpful. And I think about the switch from like our current electoral process to a lotocracy, similar to how I have been thinking about the abolish the police movement and that we hold police responsible for too many things and that they have too much power and influence over things that they don't have the aptitude even to deal with. Just like how it it almost doesn't make sense to ask people like Joe Biden or Donald Trump what they're going to do for the Black community in the U.S. because not only do they not have those experiences, but those are not within their economic interests. So why would they even feel like they have to be committed to that? So whether it's thought leaders or experts or whoever it is, right, like that is chosen that lotocracy who can listen to people from certain demographics or who have certain interests, whether it's the environment or racial issues, so they can more accurately speak to and help resolve some of the issues on a smaller and larger scale. I think that would be more beneficial than having leaders who are so out of touch and, you know, don't have a desire to get in touch. I agree. I are current government is not necessarily representative of what America looks like. I will say the, you know, the House of Representatives is a lot closer to, you know, what we would consider the U.S. to be. Um, You know, a lot of those politicians are a good representation of their constituents, but that's on such a lower level than when you get to um, like the Senate or the uh, uh, executive branch. A lot of those people tend to be, you know, as this uh, author says, you know, in that white elite class, because being a politician, politician isn't always that $2 million, you know, a year job. It's a lot of the time people that run for politics are people that have that capital to be able to not have a normal job and run for politics and try to get their kind of policies pushed forward by, you know, through lobbyists and stuff of that nature. And it's right, you know, some of these high ranking people that basically choose how we run our country are not always the people that are having these same experiences. You know, Joe Biden always talks about how he grew up in, you know, these rough neighborhoods, but that doesn't mean he has the same experience of a black American growing up in a similar neighborhood. You know, there's these 
inherent differences between these people that Joe Biden or Donald Trump or a third party candidate can't necessarily completely encompass. There's some good points to this idea of a lottery to elect government officials, but it's kind of like throwing you know mashed potatoes at the wall. Like some of the mashed potatoes are going to stick and they're going to be good ideas, but a lot of it's going to eventually fall off. One of the biggest issues we have right now in current politics is the amount of hidden money, uh, the amount of lobbyists that are saying, hey, if you do this, I'll do this for you. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why people disliked Hillary so much was because they felt like she had all these obligations to outside forces. You know, we talk about Donald Trump potentially owing billions of dollars. Who does he owe that billions of dollars to? I think it is just coming up to a billion dollars. But who does he owe that money to? I don't want my elected officials to be there because they owe someone something else. I want them there because they want what's best for our country. In any political system, there's going to be people that use their money to sway electors and sway people making the big votes. You know, we need to kind of stop putting, you know, bandages on these artery wounds. We actually need to go in there and fix the wounds. Exactly. Exactly. I was having that same conversation actually a few days ago, just about reparations, right? And how the ask from a lot of people is give us money, right? Give black people the money that they are owed for the damages that have been done to them year after, you know, century after century, right? But if they were to do that, right, it's similar. It reminds me of when people say things like go and vote. And then that's the end of it, right? Like that's the only obligation or responsibility that they have to do. And then after they vote, like they're absolved of any wrongdoing for the next four years until that next election or general election comes up. And with reparations, you give them the money and that's the bandaid on the problem, right? But there are such deep structural issues that need to be resolved and that why people need to atone for um, that they're not willing to do, of course, but it's band-aids, right? We're just like trying to cover up an issue with something that would be easy. Similar to, um, I think about um, unemployment and the additional $1,200 that went out at some point, you know, in the past six months to a lot of people. That itself was a band-aid, right? And people... I've heard people say things like because of that, they're willing to their vote is going to be swayed in Trump's favor because like he did something positive for people in that one time. But that is people don't deserve that. Even the people who are voting for him because of that, like they deserve so much more than that small amount of money that they had received in that time. So I don't know where I was going with that. But (laughs) no, no, I think if you don't mind me jumping in, I think you made a very good point on you can't just continually tell people to vote. And then people go and vote. And if they have no idea who they're voting for, does it really matter if they voted? They're not actually being a productive part of our democracy. That's one of the good things that, you know, one of the mashed potatoes that will stick to the wall of this um, <laughs> this lottery is, you know, you have these people that are adjoining on let's say climate change, and they're spending a month, two months, three months actually learning about all the policies and actually being educated on, you know, the system of these policies and what these policies mean, and actually making educated decisions, you're going to have more educated policies. And I think the key takeaway from a story like this is it's so important to actually be educated on what you're voting for. You know, you can't just go to the polls and say, well, I heard Donald Trump called Joe Biden sleepy Joe Biden, or here in Minnesota, Donald Trump's been showing up to Minnesota more than Biden. So obviously, Donald Trump cares more about Minnesota. So I'm going to vote for Trump. Those aren't valid reasons. I don't care if you want to vote for Trump, but I do care if you're going to vote for Trump or if you're going to vote for Biden, at least tell me a good reason why. Mm -hmm, Exactly. I think this also like reminds me of a lot of people who are kind of single issue voters. Like I know this happened a lot in 2016. I was listening to I think it was the Daily, um, like New York Times, and there was a, a whole segment on Um, people who had switched from 2016, who they were voting for to 2020, like they voted for Trump in 2016, and they were making a different voting decision in in this 2020. And a lot of the reasons that they had provided were things like abortion, or the economy and taxes and how those will impact them personally. And I think with a setup like this, right, like with a lot of crassy where there are committees or, you know, of sorts where people are focused on specific things, I think it would allow people to hone in on those things that they care about. I think also, like, it's hard to expect people to be advocates for the environment and for a whole bunch of other things they care about, right? Like, I mean, I... I am biased towards the things that I care about. So like I would say the environment <laughs> yeah, and Black Lives Matter and like being pro-choice and allowing women, you know, rights to their own bodies and their health care. But I think it's hard for a lot of people to grasp 
being able to support all of that at once. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I think that if we have a lot of CRASI where there are people designated to those areas, it'll allow people to kind of look to a specific person rather than looking to Donald Trump or Joe Biden to resolve every issue in the world that they have. Like they can look to that one person who's the minister of women's health or whatever it is. Right. And say, Hey, I have this issue. Or I have this question. How can we work together to resolve this rather than waiting in a long queue or, you know, trying to like make Facebook posts to the Joe Biden official Facebook page and, you know, hope that he responds because he's not going to. Right. But if you have someone who's elected official, yeah, it's probably still going to be on a federal level, but it's a specific person that you can point to and say, this is the the expert or the person who is responsible for gathering the information and learning more about people who deal with this specific issue and how we can help resolve it or make it better here. Well, yeah, we have it branded into our brains that these policies, these issues can only be solved by this federal level when, you know, as I said, our local officials are so important. Like, yeah, I have, you know, I'm very in tune to what candidates are saying about, you know, student loans, the environment, you know, just like taxes, gun reform, stuff like that. Those are very important to me. But, you know, when you hear in the debates, like talking about foreign policy, I don't know a lot about foreign policy. So I know as an educated voter, I need to at least spend at least five minutes just looking up a quick, what are their foreign policy plans? And just really trying to be as worldly, I don't even know if that's the right phrase to use in that, but trying to be more encompassing of all these different issues. And if we had these much larger constituents that specifically were like, all right, I want to know more about foreign policy. Now I can you know, hear from these 300 people, uh, for this example that Guerrero said, I can hear from these 300 people that have heard from all these experts, all these stakeholders, all these people about this specific issue. I feel like they have a more credible outlook than Joe Biden or Donald Trump who are trying to juggle 20 different outlooks. Right. I think something that's interesting that you brought up too is that these people who are kind of the elites, right? Like they have enough money. They've built up their careers as whatever it is, lawyers or judges, and they've decided to run for office and they can afford, right, to run for office and hold these elected official positions. And I wonder, like, I don't know. I think something I was hoping to to learn more about was what that would look like for people who are selected from this lotocracy and they are a cashier at Walgreens or an elementary school teacher, right? And they're selected to go and represent in this area for a certain selected amount of time. Like, would they be able and or willing to give up their current life? Or how would that be? (laughs) I mean, we can't even do it for women when they have a child. How are we going to expect to do it for government? Exactly. Right. So, and I think what frustrates me a little bit is that I don't know that there are enough people who have the mindset of stepping away from their own lives to do something for the greater good of the others around them. And I think about masks, masks, for example, right? Like a lot of people feel inconvenienced, I'm doing air quotes, but (laughs) it's an inconvenience to do something for the greater good of other people. Why would people want to step away from potential career growth or their income or maybe the, you know, the regular hours that they're used to working to help support their society, their local or larger community in a way where they're, they're needed. I don't know. And I think with the jury, the jury comparison is helpful because it's like, okay, like that model, it makes sense. Like we all feel an obligation to our government to do that. But no one wants to do jury duty. Yeah. (laughs) No one wants to. I also like have been wondering like, where's my jury duty card? I'm interested. Like if I get a really (laughs) cool case, like not cool. Like I love true crime. So if it's like a criminal case, like I'm, I'm down. If it takes three years, I'll, I don't care. I'll do it. <laughs> but Well, that's like the interesting thing. And kind of to your point, the one time I got jury duty is I was just coming back from doing a lot of work. I was broke as can be. I literally had to get a job that week because I had a ton of bills coming in. And literally that week I got selected for jury duty. And for jury duty in Minnesota, you get paid $50 a day. And I had to be there for a minimum of three days. And I was like, I could be making double, triple quadruple this, but I have to do this or I'm going to jail. But if I don't get out of this, I'm going to go into debt and I'm going to get a bunch of overdrafts on my you know, bank account. And so I was like, I just need to get out. I remember you know, telling the jury to be, because at the time I was like writing stuff and they're like, what do you write about? I was like, I just write about things in my daily life like this. And they're like, oh, that's probably not going to work. And I was like, probably not going to work. But anyways, I would have loved to been in jury duty when I was in a place where I felt comfortable financially, but I wasn't. And a lot of Americans 
don't feel comfortable financially, I would say a, a vast majority of Americans don't feel comfortable and they wouldn't be comfortable taking time off, taking three years off to potentially give up their life for the betterment of society. Exactly right. People have responsibilities. They have families like rent has to be paid. People need to eat. So it's like if we do move towards that, what is the government going to do? What what can we set up that will help people to be comfortable? Well, that's another interesting thing. You know, he mentions a substantial salary. If Bill Gates and myself get chosen for this, a substantial salary for Bill Gates is going to be very different than a substantial salary for me. So how do you, you know, make it fair so if someone like Bill Gates is selected, obviously he doesn't need more money. I mean, scaling it down a bit, if you have someone who's making, you know, half a million dollars a year and you have someone like me who's not making half a million dollars a year, how are you going to scale that so it is fair? Right. Yeah. I don't know. The first thing that came to my mind is like, find out the person who gets paid the most in their day job and pay everybody that right? <laughs> Just because I feel like that's an easy way to do it. Or like an average. I don't know. Yeah, it's hard because I think about myself. Like that's something that I would be open to doing. Like if I was selecting the lottocracy, sure, I'd step up. But if it meant that I couldn't pay my bills, then I would be questionable, of course. So yeah, I don't know. I really struggle with that, with the with it being viable, right? Like yeah. I think it is a great idea, but just due to the fact that we don't know what will be what how people will make up for like the the opportunities they're missing out on, whether it's like personal, professional, whatever they're they're looking for, or just like the bare finances of it. I don't know how viable it is. I mean, before we go on, this episode will come out the day before the election. Does does the current system of how we elect our government officials need to change? Right now we're in the electoral college. In 2000 and in 2016, the popular vote candidate did not win the Electoral College. I think it's been five times in recorded history that that's happened. Um, so the Electoral College is somewhat accurate, but does it need to change? I think it absolutely needs to change. Something I was researching was how many faithless electors there were in 2016. And it turns out that there were a few, but it wasn't enough to actually have changed the election, right? Like if every elector actually voted in the way that they were supposed to, like with the constituents in their area, the election still would have turned out the same. I'm not an expert in electoral college and you know, electoral politics, but it just seems like if we're going out to vote and our vote doesn't decide who the president is, then what are we even doing? Yeah. And I know a lot of people are abstaining for that reason. Like, why would you even vote if your vote isn't going to make a difference or if it doesn't matter? And ultimately, a group of a select few is going to make the final decision. So I think it absolutely needs to change. If, you know, if I had written the rules of America back when, <laughs> back when it became a country, I'd say everyone gets one vote and it's equal weight and whoever wins, wins. And that's it. I wouldn't have added all these other layers and stuff. But of course, it's not my responsibility. And I <laughs> didn't have the honor of coming up with these expectations and rules. So I do think it, it needs a, a switch for sure. That's the interesting thing, especially like speaking to like the Supreme Court. It's like we're, we're living in the 1770s when it comes to these decisions. Like times have changed. The founders did a surprisingly very, very good job outside of being racist and sexist, but of setting up our democracy. But it's not 1776 anymore. We can't continue into the future of America by running a country controlled by the past. It, it, it's just not going to work. These things have to be updated. You know, I know there's the um, the National Popular Vote Compact, which awards electoral votes to whoever wins the popular vote based on the state. So if Joe Biden ends up winning Minnesota in the popular vote, he gets the electoral college votes for Minnesota. It's in effect in 14 states. I think there would need to be a two thirds of the House and the Senate, and it would be need to be ratified by three fourths of the states. Um, but it, there does needs to be some sort of change because like you said, you know, people feel like they're not being represented. And then obviously you kind of have the cons of, well, if we choose to more of that popular vote, what happens to rule of America? Are they not going to feel represented? So it is, you know, I'm not a political science major. I just do research and have a podcast, but we can do better and we should do better. Yeah. I think about too, like how powerful even the electoral college vote is because that's what determined the replacement of RBG with Amy Coney Barrett, right? Like if we had chosen to have, if the electoral college selected Hillary Clinton as the president, like we would, we would have replaced RBG with a more liberal 
Supreme Court justice. Now that, you know, since they have, you know, life terms, right, they're there until they're gone. Yeah. It makes it really hard because the courts with will be packed with people who believe a certain way and they're particularly young, like they're not like old by any means, but they've got a long ways to go if they're going to stay and not retire. <laughs> yeah. so, so we're kind of like, it's it's scary because these decisions that are made by the Electoral College are going to last for years. I mean, I don't know how old Amy Coney Barrett is, but let's say she's here for another 40 years. That's 40 years of one person's influence on a court where they have such strong beliefs and opinions that are so anti many people's identities. And that's just going to be woven into the very fabric of how decisions are made in our country for the next 40 years. That's a little terrifying. And I don't know about the rest of the justices, but it seems like there's just an uneven weight and that since that power is in the hands of the president and then the people can't even choose the president, it just seems like there's a web of mess and it needs to be fully broken down. Kind of to end my thoughts on the story. Yeah, it's, you know, we're not living in 1776 anymore. It's time to update these systems so that we feel that everyone in America feels like they're a part of this democracy. If I'm willing to pay taxes, I want to feel like I can vote for who represents me. Exactly. That's exactly it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I would like to welcome to the show wannabe writer and current business consultant, Bianca Inquanta. Bianca? Welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so November 3rd, 2020, important day for the U.S. Uh, with the days and weeks following whatever the American people decide, how do we stay positive about the future? You know, there's going to be, like we said, there's going to be no matter where it ends up, there's going to be millions of people that don't necessarily feel represented for the next two to four years moving forward. You know, how do we continue to think outside the realm of whatever our reality ends up being and, you know, understand our future doesn't have to be what it is current? Mm, that's a great question because I, you know, there's been so much talk of the election and people going out and voting and like making this informed decision. And then we're kind of all in this limbo about what happens after, because what we know is that however the election, you know, ends, whoever's, you know, elected into that position, there's still so much work that needs to be done. Like whether it's like rewiring or refixing or just like still continuing to push forward. And it's so hard to stay positive during all of that, especially during a pandemic, especially after the, the whirlwind summer that we had with all of the brutal police killings and murders that were happening to black people. Right. And, you know, of course people have been aware of that, but some people were still becoming hip to that, even though like it's been around because they just, their eyes had not been opened. Right. So there has been like a, thread and theme of just kind of doom and gloom in the past several months. In terms of staying positive, I, I wish I had all the answers <laughs> <laughs> because I would take that advice myself. But the one thing that I can think of is for myself, what I'll say I've been trying to do is safely and for the most part virtually surrounding myself with people who I know are committed to making changes, at least within their own personal circles or locally, right? Because we can't all be in DC, like knocking on the White House door and begging for the changes that we want to see in our, our community. It, it doesn't always happen that way. So if there are ways that we can do things on a smaller scale to make our day to day and the things that are closer to us seem a bit more like doable and to feel breathable and livable, like I'll absolutely do that. So for me, it's just been trying to support locally and trying to get a pulse on what is going on around me in my like immediate community. And of course, it's still a lot of BS, right? Because we're dealing with the homelessness issue in, in Minneapolis and St. Paul and the encampments and how either city is like struggling to purchase these properties so we can put people in these hotels that are empty and vacant over the winter time. So we are still seeing issues. But if there are ways that we can support, right, like doing a drive and gathering supplies for people, whether it's jackets or blankets or um, socks or whatever else they might need or um, finding ways to give back. I find that that's helpful in helping me to to stay positive because I know um, not that it's like all about how I feel at the end of the day, like, oh, I'm doing such a great thing, <laughs> but more so that there is work that needs to be done in my community and I'm doing what I can to support rather than being so upset about what is happening on a national level. I think people are absolutely, absolutely entitled to feel upset about what's going on and about the fact that we're going to be in a crappy position either way um, after <laughs> election day. But I think if we can move forward knowing that there, our support is needed on the ground locally, I think that that is 
helpful to me and I hope it's helpful to other people. And I think it's important, like what you originally uh, said there at the beginning, is you're allowed to choose who you surround yourself with. And you know, you're allowed to choose people that have differing opinions than you. And those conversations that you have with those friends, family members don't always have to be about abortion. You know, Thanksgiving is coming up. You don't have to have an abortion with your grandma or you don't have to have a conversation with your grandma about abortion. You know, these are policies that do matter. But, you know, as we'll talk about in the second story, I think it's important to really start trying to connect with people outside of policy. If you both love baseball, if you both love coffee, start there. And then eventually when you get to a policy, that you disagree on, I think you're going to have a more constructive and more positive conversation. If you just start off, you know, if your favorite color is red and my favorite color is blue, and I say, I hate red, we're going to have a confrontation right away. But if I say, oh, what are your thoughts on, you know, the new season of The Bachelorette, and we both like The Bachelorette, and we can be like, not a fan, huh? Yeah, right. (laughs) Of course, the worst. (laughs) But, you know, we can start off from some communication and eventually grow those. And I think that's a lot of what we need to do to repair the country and repair this divide is find connection first and then have these productive, positive conversations, you know, because if we keep having these negative dividing conversations, then every time we turn on the news, every time we read, you know, the internet, every time we have conversation, it's just going to feel like there's so much weight on our shoulders, so much negativity, so many bad things happening in the world where bad things are happening in the world. You know, I don't think we should just forget about things happening, but there's so many good things happening and we have an opportunity to come together and connect. I feel like people are losing sight of their own personalities. You know, like people have made their personalities their political leanings. And so when we enter a conversation with someone who we know leans differently than us politically, like that's the only thing we see. Like we're, it's almost dehumanizing in a way, like on both sides, right? Like I have definitely done that where I'm like, oh, they're, you know. Yeah, we've all done it. Right. (laughs) I'm not talking with them. I'm not engaging. Like, I'm not having this conversation with this person because, like, we have nothing to talk about. Whereas, like, okay, maybe we had, like, one thing in common that we could have talked about and, like, kikied and laughed over. But, you know, we, we enter with these biases that make it really hard for us to find common ground with people who we're trying to, like, level set and, like, have meaningful conversations with. And I think about, you know, like you said, Thanksgiving is coming up. And I have been seeing so many people, like, say things like, and I, I don't mean to call anybody out, but I've been seeing a lot of things like, take care of yourself this Thanksgiving. If your racist uncle and grandma are sitting at the table and you don't want to talk to them, take your space, take your time, go away, like, you know, go to your room and, like, just simmer down for a bit and come back when you're ready and whatever. And I think that's like great and all. I really am all for self-care and I, I do want people to take care of themselves. And, you know, if they don't have to go through panic or anything like that, I'd rather them not. Right. But at the same time, it seems a little like ally fatigue-ish to say, like, mm, go point. to your room and, and take care of yourself when someone's confronting you with a difficult problem. Like they're your family. I know you didn't choose them. But at the same time, if they're at your house and you're at the t- same table and you're breaking bread, is there a way that you can find common ground with this person that you did not choose to be in your life? And maybe before you had a political awakening, like you would go over to their house every week. Like that was just your family. That was Jima. And you were cool with yeah. her until you realized that she hated people of color and like doesn't support abortion and things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important kind of to your point, you know, if there is a toxic situation, you, you more than have the right to leave that situation. But I think there is a sense of when it comes, you know, family or, you know, former friends or, you know, close friends that you once were close with, but not so much now because of their uh, leanings politically, I think it is important to at least give them an opportunity to explain themselves. And if they show time and time again that they're not willing to do that, then cut them out of their life or cut them out of your life. You have that opportunity. But I think we need to do a better job of listening. Exactly right. I think we're so quick to cancel. I hate to use that word, (laughs) cancel culture, whatever. But it's, it's very easy to be like, oh, we don't agree. Boom, you're done. Like you're cut off. Like it's you and I, like, there's nothing for us to, to relate yeah. on anymore. Um, when really, like, if we're trying to get people to understand where we're coming from, we also have to know, like, what their experiences are or why they believe what they believe. Um, and if we don't take the time to do that, then, of course, it's just going to be, we're going to be continue to exist in a divisive world where people are, like, choosing sides and people's personalities and identities are, are more so what they believe and who they're supporting in, in an election than like what movies they like or what kind of person they are, or if they're an introvert or extrovert or whatever else. And I'm not, I'm not giving like any pass to racist grandmas, <laughs> but 
they grew up in a time where that was normalized. And, you know, it doesn't make it okay whatsoever. You know, like I said in the last story, times are changing. Let's, you know, be with the times. But you have to understand that they just saw the world a different way. And they're learning how to see the world in a new way. And we can't just be combative or else they're going to say, well, if you're just going to be a combative about this new world, then I'm just going to enjoy my old world. Exactly. They're like just going to pitch and hold themselves into what they know and people who support what they believe. Like if you have just been like, if you feel like someone's being combative with you and they have a different opinion, you're not going to go and find solace in people who have that different opinion. So you can go be like beat up some more. You're going to go with the people <laughs> who agree with you and support your opinion. They're going to coddle you and make you feel like you were right for having that belief. And you're going to be like, okay, Okay, yeah, like I was right in believing this, you know, heinous thing is correct. But we can't, I don't think it's appropriate to take such a combative approach to people who think differently. I think in some cases it's appropriate, right? Like if it's repeated and they're aggressive and harassing you. And there are many other cases that I, you know, can't think of off the top of my head where it's more than appropriate to step away from those situations. But a lot of times, especially when we're trying to do this thing to educate people and to not have Black people and Black trauma or, you know, queer people and queer trauma or whatever else the issue is, be the the cause for education, right? If we want people to, to learn and grow and we don't want that to come from people's trauma and it has to come from white people or what's family members or whatever it is, it is we can't resorts to running away when we're confronted with something that's different than what we believe in. We have to like be steadfast and like in helping those other communities and uplifting them by saying, I hear your opinion and this is what I believe and let's talk about it. Yes. Uh, before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk are in a mission to help give back to different parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of the episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we hope you listening to this episode can join in to help spread their message to your own personal audience. Uh, Bianca, your charity of choice for today's episode is Project Protect through the Reach Nigeria. Do you mind explaining a bit about what they do and the impact they have in our communities? Yes. So I am Nigerian by heritage, and I'm sure a lot of people have noticed or are becoming aware that police brutality is not just a U.S. thing. They went police brutality to the world, and it's happening on a large scale in Nigeria with um, SARS, which is a special anti-robbery unit that was put together by the government. And they have just been brutalizing and hurting people who have been protesting against them, particularly the youth, because the youth have really stepped up in a marvelous way to protest for their rights and protest for you know, not having a corrupt, bad government and having representatives who care about them and reflect them just like we're fighting for here. And so this organization is dedicated to helping to bring resources, whether it's food or medical supplies to the youth who are protesting and continue to protest in Nigeria um, to make sure that they're being heard and taken care of on a global scale, because I know it can be tough to send support from the U.S. or any other country to, you know, to Nigeria. But we're trying to do the best we can to get resources to help them out and make sure that they're strong and steadfast in their fight against police brutality. No, I appreciate you sharing their message. Well, all right. Are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode. Yes, I am. This story is from the New Republic Soapbox, October 21st, 2020. Liberals are losing the journalism wars. The University of North Carolina's Hussman School of Journalism and Media recently released a report titled The Expanding News Desert, which showed that over the last 15 years, more than a fourth of American newspapers and half of its journalists have disappeared due to budget cuts, turning thousands of communities into news deserts no longer served by anyone who can provide a comprehensive and accurate description of what is happening in those communities. Into that vacuum of community news gathering, other things have started to flow. Last year, the Lansing State Journal noticed a website, The Lansing Sun, that appeared to be a community news outlet, but was in fact part of a network of dozens of websites that had the appearance of being said community news outlets. Reporters elsewhere followed up and found, quote, at least 450 websites in a network of local and business news organizations that distributed thousands of algorithmically generated articles and stories with a conservative political bent. By August of this year, the number of websites in that network had nearly tripled. The man behind those websites was former journalist Brian Timpone, an American conservative businessman whose site operates a pay-for-play propaganda for conservative organizations. Clients pay for certain, quote, news to be produced, 
and then it is published on a normal-looking local news site alongside countless innocuous stories produced by machines as camouflage. Tim Poen has taken advantage of how profit chasing has blown up the entire concept of media literacy. And as newspapers die and people get more and more of their news from social media, fewer people recognize which news brands are supposed to be reliable and trustworthy. This scheme, however, is not only attributed to conservative-leaning news. There is a liberal version of the scheme, but on a much, 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 much smaller scale. Courier Newsroom operates eight websites officially. Tim Pone's scheme now encompasses over 1,200 websites, so there's a, there's a big difference there. The reason being that this happens with conservatives is they have an exhaustible stock of private business owners that are more concerned about the volume and reach of their news rather than the efficiency and persuasiveness. And Democratic donors have been unwilling to subsidize liberal media directly to any degree that right subsidize its own media. And so to fight back against budget cuts and layoffs while not directly subsidizing their media, liberal news outlets have turned to subscription and paywalls to keep the lights on at night. Uh, the very source of this article we are having a conversation about only allows three free articles before having to subscribe. But by using subscriptions and paywalls, they have allowed individuals like Brian Tapone to set up shop outside those walls to entertain everyone who is unwilling to pay the subscription fee. Producing high-quality journalism is, ex is expensive, but what journalists frequently ignore is that subscription models, by definition, self-select for an audience seeking high-quality news and exclude people who would still benefit from high-quality news but can't or won't pay for it. And if people can't or won't pay for local or national news, then they will inevitably learn about their world and their community from the news that is readily available and free. Once again, news is expensive to produce, and the people who produce it deserve to be fairly compensated for doing so. But at some point, we have to decide if the point of journalism is to employ journalists or to publicize useful information. Subscriptions and paywalls have been able to sustain numerous national news institutions, but there has been no evidence that that model can work on the local level across the U.S. that contains over 1,200 daily local newspapers. The wide availability of poisonous media and the walling off of quality journalism are not the primary cause of America's noxious politics, but they have done much to create the divided conditions of our current society. The fact that we are all watching as the institutions of journalism is replaced by corporate PR and right-wing propaganda is not a problem in need of solutions from business schools, consulting firms, or Silicon Valley. It's a democratic problem, in need of a democratic solution. The paywall saved the Atlantic, but can it save local American journalism? It amazes me, Bianca, that this is not an issue that's not like more front and center. Like, you know, granted, granted, both sides have been shown to peddle untruths, uh, but time and time again, it's right wing conservatives that are doing it on a much larger scale. And I've said this before about Trump. Trump didn't create the system. You know, the system was already starting to be established and he saw an inroad to become a figure in it. And when I mean system, I mean the um, just the lack of credibility in modern news. It's become more important to say something first than then than it is to say something that's credible. I, I would be a hypocrite to say, I haven't fallen into this, this statement a few times, it happens, but it shouldn't happen often. The, 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 the openness of right-wing propaganda and the lack of integrity has flourished in the system. A recent example, the Hunter Biden story is pure conspiracy, right up there with the, the Pizzagate conspiracy. You're telling me that Hunter Biden flies across the US from LA to have his laptop repaired by a blind repairman for like 85 bucks and then never comes back to pick them up? And that blind repairman has the wherewithal to look through thousands of emails and look through the hard drive, which by the way, he's also able to hack into the largest tech company in the world's encryption data, which, you know, Apple is one of the top technology firms in the world for a reason, but he's able to all do this. He's able to have the wherewithal to copy these broken hard drives uh, before he sends this these, these laptops to the FBI and then the FBI doesn't act on it. And he gives the hard drives to Rudy Giuliani, who just happens to sit on these until just before the election. There seems to be a lot of strings in this story that aren't matching up once you do a little more research. You know, and to be fair, the Woodward tape should have come out right away as well. But time and time again, we see conservatives supporting more conspiracy-related stories because there's so much more non-credible information being peddled by individuals like what is what is Brian Tampone? You know, I, I I try and stay moderate in my research, but when I continually see misinformation from one side more than the other, and more of that information being shared on sites like Facebook or Twitter, it's tough to have productive and meaningful conversations. Exactly. And it's crazy because I see it 
even just in my daily life, even from my own mother, right? Like, I think there's a generational issue of media literacy. And, you know, we were brought up going to school, like, and we learned what was what looked legitimate. Of course, there's still disparity in that, like, not everybody knows, right? But she'll send me articles that are so heavily biased. Um, and she's like, Oh, my gosh, did you know this? And I was like, Well, did you know that this is an opinion article? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. on Breitbart News, like, this is fully like, not reliable news information. But it's it's spread so easily, right? And I think people put the onus and the, the, the responsibility on Facebook to resolve that, which I think for the most part, it, you know, it does have to do with the internet and, and how quickly misinformation spreads, and how social media just amplifies that. But it's hard, because how do you keep track of all that? You know, you want people to stay informed, and they do their research and it's influenced by confirmation bias like they're looking for things that they want to see and if they see something they don't like they're not going to like dive into that really like people like things that make them feel good about their decisions so it's just tough um knowing that on top of that right like these paywalls that exist a lot of them are exist for more moderate to liberal sources because their intent is to, you know, provide support to their journalists and who are doing this good investigative or, you know, whatever type of journalism it is. Whereas these more conservative right wing sources are just like, here's the information. It was compiled by like six contributors on this like Facebook thread. And this is this is these are the facts. And you just have to Steve, like, Steve from down the street. He had some opinions <laughs> about this and we're going to publish it. Literally. And we're going to publish it. And thousands of people are going to share it and, and believe it as fact. It's just wild. There's this uh, local dad who I'm friends with on Facebook, like some kid I graduated with his dad. I hope this isn't too obvious. I feel like everyone knows about him. <laughs> so if anybody listens, sorry. <laughs> um, but he is constantly posting conservative content and um, he'll get on and post something that's, you know, very like whatever about Joe Biden, Sleepy Joe, whatever else it is about how wearing masks are an abuse of people's rights or, you know, inconvenience, whatever. And people will comment and say, well, I'm not sure about that. Or maybe you could think about things diff- this way. Or like, have you thought about this? Or have you heard this? Or like, this is not what I saw. And his response to that will be like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, well, how about you take a look at the facts? And then he drops <laughs> a Fox News opinion article. And people are like, wow, thank you for sharing. I didn't think of that. Or I hadn't seen that. And it's like, you guys, this is not legit. <laughs> That's something I've been thinking about a lot recently is do facts actually matter? Because, you know, that person, he could find facts that say his point is valid. So when you're having a conversation with someone and I can pull out a study by this or that that says my point is true and you can pull out a fact or study that says your point is true, do the facts actually matter in that case? I don't know. That's the thing. It's like do people even look at facts or are they just looking at like, I mean, ultimately it's like how people feel, right? When I think about people around me or a lot of what I see on my own social media streams and feeds, it's people sharing these articles that are factual for the most part, like they're peer research centered, they're very research based, um, but they're sharing their opinion and their thoughts on that information in addition, right? A lot of these articles that are being shared around that are more like from these conservative right-wing sources are laced with opinion throughout. The the bias is like seeping out of the words on the article. There might be facts included in there, like, you know, numbers that are legitimate or or things that people can follow. And like, you can click through and see where the actual source of that information is. And it's a legitimate source. But a lot of that is not included. And people just, I don't know. And I think also people, it's very easy to just like make up anything you want. The internet is, you know, people can just go on, type whatever they want, like make up as many facts as they want. And if it comes from someone that people like typically believe in, like they'll believe it. Like I've done that all the time too. Like if I see something from, someone, I don't know, that I think is reliable or like some, you know, government official that I I do follow or, you know, local that I I do follow, then I'll be like, oh, okay, like, that's true. I'll most likely follow up. Like, I'm not just gonna like, take it as fact and law and like, go and spread it to the world. (laughs) Um, But I think a lot of people do that. And we just like, look at things and like, oh, wow, that's wild. That's crazy. I didn't know that. Or I'd never seen that before. And it just goes in our like, mental We've kind of followed that tribalism. Like if someone in my tribe is saying something, I'm more likely to believe them. Like, you know, if you support Ben Shapiro, you're going to support what he says and you're less likely to follow what maybe Pod Save America says. And if you support Pod Save America, you're less likely to believe something that Ben Shapiro says. But people aren't always willing to do that extra research. I built a show on the fact that people 
fall into the clickbait and aren't willing to really or aren't willing to read an article. You know, if I can draw you in talking about a government lottery, then I'm drawing you into the conversation we had. Mm -hmm. I would be a hypocrite to say people aren't, you know, monetizing people's I don't, I don't even know if laziness is the right word, but lack of willing to question their own beliefs. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think it's very easy. I was thinking about like, you go anywhere and you see a headline and it's clickbait, right? Um, and you click into it and then you could read that article. But then for some things that are, you know, more alarming or, you know, breaking news, whatever you go and there's a paywall, like how much more inclined are you to keep seeking out sources that are sharing that when they all have paywalls? Like, why wouldn't you just go towards the information that doesn't have that? that block or that like, you know, financial barrier. And a lot of those, if they're like biased, then that's just where you're going to get your news from. And then like the social media algorithms, like they just learn your activity. They learn like what you like to see and you'll continually see ads and more content will show up on your, your pages or, or even your Google searches that will confirm the beliefs that you have and of the things that you continuously click into and read. So if you are using a lot of right wing news sources and clicking into a lot of those, your computer, Google, your FBI agent, they're all clocking <laughs> it and it's going to show up on your social media time and time again. It's just a very, very, and that's the thing. Like, those things are also all paid. Like all of those agencies, whether it's like tech companies or the, you know, the news companies themselves, they're making money from people seeing their, their ads or, you know, their, their articles and they show up and people click into them. Yeah, they pay for that. But the engagement that they get after the fact, they're earning from that. They're, they're capitalizing off of, off of disinformation being spread on a massive level. And why would people want to stop gaining capital? So it's hard when there are paywalls and people just go towards the information they know because it's like, oh, there's good information <laughs> or, you know, reliable information yeah. right there, but we can't access it and we can't force people to pay for the, the, the resource to learn more about what they need to learn about. Well, yeah. As the article mentions, places like Facebook and Twitter are becoming people's main source of news. And if I click on a link, it goes to the link and there's behind a paywall. I'm going back to either Facebook or Twitter. I would say this is for most people. They're just going to read the headline. You know, Chelsea Handler gets 50 cent back on the Democratic train because she reminds him he's black. Like just... Uh, ridiculous statements, but then they're going to the comments. They're not going to read the article. They're going to either find that article on a free place that may not be as factual, or most of the time, I'll, I'll admit I do it. I'll go to the comments and see what other people are saying. So I don't have a firsthand account of what the article is talking about. I'm having the second, third, fourth account that's being filtered by someone's bias. Mm, I've seen that a lot of times with Star Tribune, like they have a, I, I, I think they're notorious, or at least amongst my people, like notorious for that darn paywall. Like I can never, <laughs> I can never read anything they publish on my phone for some reason. I will usually have to go on incognito on my computer to finally get to the article. But I've even seen it where people will comment under their post, this darn paywall, or they're using, you know, their choice words, yeah. whatever else it is to talk about how frustrating it is that the news that they want to read about is inaccessible and how it becomes an inconvenience for them to to find out information or to see, you know, they see a headline they're interested in, they can't click on it. So I don't know. It's just like, it's troublesome because you want to do the right thing and support journalists, and support writers. Um, but I personally have never, like, never paid for resources like that. Maybe I should. I don't know if I'm outing myself by saying that. <laughs> I just have it because... I, I pay for one. I pay for Aeon because I love the articles that they're putting out, but you know, you can't, you can't always support, you know, there's 1200 local newspapers in the US. I can't support every single one when I try to read an article, but local newspapers are the backbone of journalism in the US. You know, the Jeffrey Epstein case broke because of a local newspaper. Right. I don't know if there is a solution, really. I, I remember reading about if there's a way, I don't know if the, how other other ways that they can be subsidized, right? Or if there's another way, yeah. there, there can be money made for the people who are putting out this content. And I wish I had an idea or a solution of what to do. And I maybe that just results in me saying, hey, like, I need to, like, set aside something <laughs> for months. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I spend my time researching things and I don't even know a solution to this. You know, you're having these big conglomerate media companies buying up all these local newspapers. And then you have some big CEO who maybe a story comes out about him or someone in his administration. And since he owns all these news things, he's able to push that under the rug. You, you're fighting, you know, this idea that we need more money by fighting big money. I always hope in the good of people, but it's not true. 
<laughs> you know, a lot of these people that are trying to monopolize different industries, they're doing so for a capitalistic reason and not for the bettering of society. Right. Yeah. Another thing that was interesting to me, though, too, is kind of the angle that, you know, was in the article of like liberals are losing, right? Like conservatives are doing this thing at a massive grand scale and liberals, like they also need to do this. And honestly, I kind of agree. I think, <laughs> I feel like they're the approach that's taken a lot of the times is like, I'm not saying that it's wrong to do the right thing. I will always support people doing the right <laughs> yeah. thing and doing the moral thing. But at the same time, conservative media spin sells their content so well and at such a massive scale. So it's easily accessible. People can get it anywhere. And liberal media is, you know, a lot of times pretty academic because, it, you know, it's coming from like reliable sources. So sometimes even the language, once you get in, you know, past the paywall, boom, you get there, the language is inaccessible and hard to understand. Like, I don't know that liberals, you know, quote unquote, as a, you know, a body <laughs> are doing enough or are going as hard as conservative people are to share um, a spin on their their information. I don't know. And I'm not saying that, it, you know, everything should be biased. I think, of course, use discretion when you're looking at articles and, and try to form your own opinion aside from the lean of whatever article you're reading. But at the same time, I it's, the article is right. I don't see a lot of media. I mean, maybe I do. And I it's it just I'm biased. <laughs> I can't tell that the article itself is biased. But I feel like I don't see a lot of the as much as like, you know, I see the blaze and I see Breitbart and the Daily Wire, Daily Caller all over the place. And I don't even follow people like who would share things like that. But I don't see liberal sites doing the same kind of like boosting of their content. That makes sense. No, I, I mean, I literally, literally read hundreds of news articles from all across the Internet every week. And there is, like I said, you know, in my original point, there is a clear difference between I think you brought up a good point. The language is very different because it's a more wide open source. There's a lot more more just, you know, Steve from down the road writing an article for the right, but on the left, having these journals with, you know, academic wording and stuff of that nature, sometimes to the point where you can't even understand it. You know, you kind of have a good point. Like Michelle Obama's, when they go low, we go high. That's a good, that's a good place to eventually get to. But eventually. sometimes you do, sometimes you do have to play the political game. And that's what, you know, conservatives, specifically when we talk about like court packing, the conservatives have been packing the local courts for years, but we're not talking about that because the Supreme Court is what their news people are peddling. If Biden and the Democrats, there's the blue wave, they're in the constitutional right to pack the Supreme Court. Is that going low? No, that's just playing by the rules. You know, I think it's important that the blue, the Democrats... Um, they really start actually saying, hey, if the other side is showing time and time again, they're not willing to play by the rules, they're doing they're willing to do whatever is needed to be done to win. You have to start getting into that situation. I know it sounds so horrible, but you have to start competing. I think competing is the best way I can phrase it. You have to start actually competing. You can't expect people to be right. good. No, it's true. And I think that's why a lot of people have problems with um, liberals, especially younger people. Like they're just our liberal representatives, their leaders, they're not going hard enough, like not even close to as hard as they need to be going. Like I know with something I was seeing the other day is that like Republicans will make a decision and rather than like fight it, like Republic, like liberals will like say, oh, we need to like end this. We need to burn it all down. This is terrible. Let's like come together and stand against this and then just let whatever decision Republicans made like happen and not even fight it. Because mm -hmm. on the one hand, like it probably benefits liberal people and, and the elite like at some level and they're not willing to admit to that. But two, like they just, they don't, I don't know if they have, don't have a backbone or what it is, but they're not <laughs> willing to, to stand up for the people that they claim to represent. And it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating seeing people on the right, like go hard for their party and go hard for their beliefs and and not necessarily like they're doing a phenomenal job at it like you can't just like stand, stand outside like for example um i saw people standing outside of planned parenthood the other day as if that was going to do anything to stop people from like getting health care like that's not going hard to me because you're just like you're just standing outside of a, a hospital a clinic like it, it doesn't mean much to me but in terms of like doing legitimate things within the structure of our government bending the rules you're not breaking the rules entirely i mean yeah sometimes they are but bending the rules or like shape-shifting them so you can get what you want and you know pack the courts or whatever else that you're trying to do i don't think liberals do enough of that 
that. They're doing a lot of the going high and trying to follow the moral road. And, and that's cool and all. And like you said, eventually we can get there. But <laughs> I don't think now's the time for that. I think we're in a much more dire situation. We have to play a little bit harder. My final thoughts are you're totally allowed to take in your news from wherever you take your news on wherever that news source leans, but find places that are credible, find places that you can double check and make sure what they're, you know, I think just being uneducated in general, regardless of where you lean politically is not a good look. And so it's important to fact check people that you somewhat trust and find people that you trust so you can fact check them less. If you eventually get to someone who's like, you know what, 90% of the time they're right, I'm going to fact check them less. But if you go to someone like Tucker Carlson, who apparently lost documents, and then when they found the documents, he was like, ah, we don't need to talk about that anymore. Like that, as someone, you know, who is a moderate and is willing to listen to both sides, that makes me go... Why, why am I listening to you? Time and time again, you're showing that you're not reliable. And so I'm going to lean one way more than the other because there's so much reliability or so much unreliability on one side compared to the other. You know, I think information should be readily available to everyone, but you actually have to do something with that information to make it matter. Right, exactly. I, I 100% agree. And I also would implore people who have a deeper understanding or like yourself, right? Like you read articles all the time, so you can probably vet what's legit, what's not like with seconds, right? And a lot of people can't do that. Even like, you know, I think about my parents, like I was saying, they send me stuff all the time. So I'm trying my best to help them understand like, hey, like, maybe don't forward this to your friends. Like, let's talk about <laughs> why this article is not legitimate. Uh, and I do implore people to also do that with their friends or family members who may not have that understanding, right? Because we don't all have the same access to education. I know in my school district growing up, that was something they enforced is like understanding what is a legitimate and you know reliable source of information. Not all places and not all school systems are built the same. So it's my mission also to help people around me, particularly my parents and relatives, understand like what's legit. I implore others to do the same. I know they can't always do that, but I think it's it's always great to just help people out when we can, just so we know like what we're looking at and knowing if it's legitimate or not. Well, Bianca, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. As mentioned, this episode will be released November 2nd, uh, the day before the general election. Do you have... And are you willing to share your prediction for who will be the commander and chief for the next four years? Oh, my gosh. Let's see. You know what? As I've been going back and forth on what I think is going to happen, I think that while the silent majority is going to pop out for Donald Trump, I do think that ultimately Joe Biden will win. I don't know. I'm not putting money on that. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my thoughts. We'll see what happens uh, on November 3rd and you know the days after, of course. Listeners, if you would like to connect with and support Bianca, you can do so by following her on Instagram and Twitter at Bianca Inquanta. Once again, at Bianca Inquanta on both Instagram and Twitter. Inquanta spelled N-K-W-O-N-T-A. Or to make it a bit easier for you, my lovely listener, you can find those links included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. All right. Well, and all right, as always, thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest host today by Bianca, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world. And we'll just try and have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. Uh, Bianca, this is my favorite part of the episode. I'm going to hand my show over to you. You have the floor to say and do whatever needs to be said to perfectly encapsulate this episode and however you want people to leave the episode. A lot of pressure, so I'm putting that all that pressure on you. Yeah, I'm feeling the weight of the world on me right now. Wow. <laughs> that is a that's a lofty ask, but I can do it. I can I can take that on. Um, I'll try and say a few things. I'll try and be quick. One of those things is the election is tomorrow, but the work does not end no matter who is elected, right? Like if you wanted Donald Trump to be in office, like that's fabulous, but know that the work hasn't ended for you. If you wanted Joe Biden to be in office and he is, it does not end there either. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. So I implore you to start looking within and looking locally and seeing how you can help to make an impact or create awareness for issues that are happening around you. Because it's clear that our 
you know, executive branch of our government isn't putting in enough effort to, to take care of the needs of the people. So if you can find out what you can do to help, absolutely do that. Do it within your means, right? Like you don't have to be an organizer and a fundraiser and a, you know, and everybody, you don't have to do every role, but whatever you're able to do and whatever skills or interests that you have that you think can better your society and people around you, absolutely do that. Um, I would say, you know, the holidays are coming up. You're going to be around your family. Take your time to take care of yourself. But also um, be steadfast in what you believe. I know it can be easy to back down when you feel like you're being attacked, but just know that you're doing what's right. And ultimately, if you're trying to bring awareness to something that you care about, that's that's what matters. And hopefully you'll always have the space and time you need to take care of yourself after you go through <laughs> talking to your racist grandma or whatever else it is. Um, I won't keep going. That'll be it. I want to pass it back over to you. That was a lot of pressure. <laughs> so. I think you nailed it under pressure. Uh, listeners, until next time. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. What an episode, what a guest, what a time. I don't, I'm doing this weird thing with my hand. You can't see it, so I don't even know why I brought it up, but I'm doing a weird thing with my hand, and I want you to know that. Thank you once again to Bianca for calling into the studio to talk about these bizarre news stories. As always, make sure to support Bianca's charity of choice, the Project Protect Nigeria. All it takes is $5, the price of a coffee, or sharing their mission with another person around the water cooler, wherever those pesky water coolers may be. But anyways, to the corrections. During the first story discussing the implementation of a new system of electing government officials, at this present moment, Trump owes nearly $1.1 billion in debt to be owed over the next few years. He will be able to leverage some of that debt for better rates, but the question still remains. Who does he owe that money to? A, a, a question that could easily be cleared up by releasing his tax returns, which he said he would do four years ago. Uh, they're just taxes, man. If you have nothing high, you know, every, every president in modern history has done it. Just, just release your tax returns. <laughs> As for jury duty compensation in Minnesota, I was incorrect. It is not $50 a day. It is instead much worse at $20 a day. I think I ended up being paid a total of like $50 to $60 because I think it was like a half day in there. And the final correction of the episode outside of Hillary in 2016 and go or in 2000, the other three presidential candidates to win the popular vote but lose the election are Andrew Jackson in 1824, Samuel Tilden in 1876, and Grover Cleveland in 1888, who only won the popular vote by less than 1%. So as for the de factors, that's a con of the Electoral College is that it doesn't necessarily elect the popular candidate. History would say otherwise, but if it continues to happen in modern times, as I say in the episode, we can't run a country into the future by rules of the past. All right, Water Coolians, that's another Corrections Corner. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Once again, thank you to Bianca for calling into the studio and talking about some of the strangest and most weirdest news stories the world has to offer. And for all my domestic U.S. listeners, regardless of what happens tomorrow and, you know, how you see the world moving forward, just know that there are opportunities to still connect. We still have opportunities to connect today, tomorrow, every other day moving forward. And that's the important thing to remember. But anyways, that's your corrections. That's your episode. So get out of here. Just, just get This out. is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. <laughs>